BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. And please join me in welcoming Susan Page, author of a great new book called Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. We all know that America's never quite seen a political force of nature like Nancy Pelosi. She'll go down in history as the first female Speaker of the House, as only the second person to be elected Speaker twice, and as one of the strongest and most effective speakers, if not the most effective ever. And she's still going strong. After driving Donald Trump crazy for four years, Pelosi now plays a key role for President Joe Biden in getting any of his legislation through Congress, the same role she played for President Obama. Which makes us all wonder, what makes Nancy Pelosi tick? What's the secret to her success? How does she hold her Democratic caucus together? And especially, how does she get along with AOC and members of the squad? Well, you'll find answers to all of those questions and a whole lot more in this hot off the press biography of Nancy Pelosi by our good friend Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Susan Page, good to talk to you again and congratulations on Madam Speaker. Bill, it's so great to be with you and to talk to you about Nancy Pelosi, whom you know so well yourself. Oh, yeah. Our our paths have crossed so many times. I mean, we come both from we were both former chairs of the California Democratic Party, uh, Nancy ahead of me. But anyhow, we have a, we've we've fought a lot of battles uh, together. And I love, love, love the book. I was interested, Susan, over the weekend. I'm now reading John Boehner's book. <laughs> and right up front. John Boehner says that Nancy Pelosi is maybe the most powerful speaker ever. Uh, do you agree? And isn't it unusual for a former speaker to say that about the current speaker? Well, it's uh, it's unusual for a former Republican speaker to say that about a current <laughs> right. Democratic speaker. Good point. Um, but Boehner, uh, in his book, which is is just out, um, is pretty critical of Republican speakers, of Kevin McCarthy, maybe not so much, Paul Ryan, some, uh, of, of speakers, of Newt Gingrich, definitely. Um, but for Nancy Pelosi, while he didn't always agree with her, I think he saw her as someone who could look at a goal and get there in a way that is he rep, he respects since he himself has been in that position. He said that he's she's the most powerful speaker of his lifetime and maybe mm-hmm. in, in American history. I think it's hard to look back into previous centuries and make a smart judgment about that. But I think it is pretty clear that she is the most consequential speaker since Sam Rayburn, the most consequential speaker in modern times. So having talked to uh, the speaker and having talked to so many people who have worked with her and maybe some against her, Susan, what did you find that makes Nancy Pelosi so effective? 
Nancy Pelosi knows how to how to get power. Uh, she's been the leader of the House Democrats since 2003. She knows how to hold on to power uh, over a long period of time through some ups and downs, through being in the majority and the minority. And she knows how to wield power. She knows how to see a goal, figure out what she can do to convince other members of Congress to vote her way to get to that goal. And she's done that in a way that is a case study in effective legislative leadership. You uh, often cite the phrase, iron fist and a Gucci glove. (laughs) That kind of sums her up, right? (laughs) You know, this is actually a John Bresnahan phrase from an from a profile he did for Politico more than a decade ago. And when I read that, when I was looking through clips, I thought that is exactly right because she does have a Gucci glove. She does have uh, soft power and, and ability to use it. But if she needs it, she takes out that iron fist and she'll deploy that as well. Right. And she has something else I think uh, that you cite also, Susan, which is a long memory, right? Uh, as, for example, in the case of Jane Harmon. You want to tell us about that? So Jane Harmon, a fellow uh, member of Congress, Democratic member of Congress from California, had been the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. When Democrats won the majority, she wanted to be the chair. Uh, that didn't happen. Nancy Pelosi prevented that from happening. Uh, and this is, Jane Harmon never forgot this. Uh, She complained that Nancy Pelosi was settling some kind of personal score. Uh, Now, I don't know if Pelosi was settling a personal score or not, but I know that every Democratic member of Congress knows this story, and it has probably meant that some of them have been careful not to get on her wrong side. Right. And the issue was that Jane Harman had voted for Steny Hoyer, uh, I guess for whip or for leader. uh, not Nancy Pelosi. Nancy knew that. And um, again, long memory. Uh, I have to tell you, Susan, uh, I had the same experience myself with another former member from California, very prominent, part of the Democratic leadership at one time. Uh, and I suggested, uh, uh, I forgot what event we were planning, but that this member, former member be invited. And I was told flatly, no, he voted for Steny. <laughs> Pretty remarkable. I The rivalry with Steny Hoyer, I think they have a better relationship now than they had in the past, but that rivalry goes back to the earliest days when Steny Hoyer thought he was in line to become the Democratic whip, and Nancy Pelosi ran what amounted to an insurgent campaign against him, at least that's what he saw it as, and she won. And she has been one step ahead of him ever since then. Harry Reid, the former uh Senate Democratic leader told me a story, too, that he had gone to Pelosi on behalf of a Democratic member of the House from his home state of Nevada. And Nevada, I always get that wrong, Nevada, I think. Um, And he said, can you please put her on this committee she wants to be on? And Pelosi said no. And Reed Reed was quite surprised because, you know, he's the leader of the Senate Democrats. He's asking this little favor. Why wouldn't you do it? And Pelosi said to him, she voted for Steny. Mm-hmm. And uh, Harry Reid told me it took him three Congresses to get this member of Congress on the committee she wanted. Uh, I was also impressed that uh, Jack Murtha, uh, at one point, uh, who was 
very close to Nancy as part of the leadership, um, described her as having playing the long game and sharing the credit. I mean, I, I have always found that that is something that strikes me about Nancy Pelosi. I've been to so many events with her, and at every event, she begins by recognizing every single member of the House who's in that room by name, right, and saying something good about every one of them. And don't you know that every single Democratic member of the House in that room remembers oh. that she bothered to recognize them? That is political gold. You know, Jack Murtha is such an important figure in Nancy Pelosi's rise because he had been, you know, he's this uh, Marine uh, veteran from coal country in Pennsylvania, and he turns out to chair her campaign for the leadership against Steny Hoyer. A shock, I think, to Steny Hoyer when that was announced. And for the book I had, I hired a researcher in Pittsburgh to go through through Jack Murtha's papers, uh, which are at the University of Pittsburgh. And she found these handwritten notes uh, that Murtha had kept for a memoir he was going to write that he never wrote, Mm -hmm. uh, in which he talked about how much respect he had for Pelosi, how, how some of the old guys didn't like her or didn't think a woman should be in the leadership, uh, but how he found her to be one of the best political minds he had ever met. Right. So where did Nancy learn her politics? Uh, San Francisco? No, <laughs> as you know, what right. a of that was. She learned her politics in Baltimore. You know, her father was this larger-than-life three-term mayor of Baltimore, known to everyone as Tommy the Elder. And you know, she also learned it from her remarkable mother, right. uh, who was known as Big Nancy, Big Nancy D'Alessandro. Uh, Big Nancy was the political organizer for her husband. Uh, She was an operative in her own right. She was an entrepreneur. Uh, She was really quite a remarkable figure. She was restless and ambitious. uh, And she had six sons and finally a daughter, Mm. little Nancy. They named the daughter after her. And her focus in some ways, and, and there are so many ways in which Nancy Pelosi reflects the lessons she learned from Big Nancy D'Alessandro. Well, one is the favor file, right? Tell us about the favor file. <laughs> it's, so the the uh, Big Nancy, when she was working for her husband, who served elected five times to Congress, three times uh, as mayor, uh, would keep what she called a favor file, and she would sit in the front hall of their house in Little Italy, and there people would line up with favors to ask. Sometimes they'd be lined up out the door (laughs) and they would come in and sit down in front of her with whatever favor they needed. Maybe they had a son who needed to get out of jail, or maybe they, maybe they were homeless and they needed to get some public housing, uh, or maybe they were hungry, or maybe they had an immigration status problem. And big Nancy would write down what they needed, often help them figure out how to solve whatever problem they were facing. Um, and keep a record of it. And then down the road, they might be relied on to provide a favor for the next person who needed it. Uh, if they had, mm-hmm. if they were in a position to be helpful to someone else down the line who needed a favor. And you could certainly count on them to vote, to vote right. for Tommy the Elder. 
right? And that's certainly a lesson that Nancy has applied to her own political career in terms of keeping track again of who did good things for her and whom she uh, owes favors to or vice versa. Uh, and yet, as you point out uh, early on in the book, Susan, Nancy Pelosi, for all of her skills and all of her achievements, I'll talk about those in a second, is, uh, as you point out, quote, regularly, regularly demonized and routinely underestimated. Um, to their peril, I would say, people who do that, right? Well, now, of course, Republicans have loved Nancy Pelosi in some ways because she's been a great fundraising foil. Uh, they depict her as an out-of-the-mainstream San Francisco liberal. Um, she has united Democrats in her time. She's also done something to unite Republicans uh, because they have used her mm -hmm. uh, uh, against the Democratic Party generally. Um, but I also think that at, at least until the era of Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi did not get her due as for her skills as a political leader. And there may be a couple reasons for that. You mentioned how she tended to give credit to other people. I think that was part of it. I think sexism was part of it as well. It's when Donald Trump got elected and Nancy Pelosi put aside her plans to retire that she became the face of the Democratic opposition and an enormously effective face against Donald Trump and someone who managed over and over again to get under his skin. What do you consider uh, Nancy's biggest legislative achievements? Well, you ask her and she would say the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. uh, the biggest expansion in health care since Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, you know, there was a time when 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 Democrats lost their 60th vote in the Senate, with when they lost the Kennedy seat in Massachusetts to Scott Brown, just about everybody in town thought there was no way to pass this big health care bill. And one of the few people who thought it was still possible was Nancy Pelosi. There and were even people in the White House, right, who oh, yeah. thought it was impossible. Well, like the chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, <laughs> right. was arguing, we can't do something big, let's do something small. Uh, she made that impossible. Uh, she had this extraordinary meeting um, in the White House right after, a few days after Scott Brown had won that, that special election, in which she said, uh, we're going to go big. Some people want to go small. Um, you can choose to go small, but if you do that, you'll do that without me. I will not push a small bill through the House. What an extraordinary threat to the President of the United States. She basically said, you can get nothing. Or we can go big, which is what I want to do. And, of course, that is what Barack Obama chose to do. Right. Particularly um, a significant for her to say that to a president of her own party, right? And, and one she revered in many ways uh, and honored. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi is not afraid of presidents. She's not afraid of presidents with whom she's allied, like Barack Obama. And she's not afraid of presidents she is against, like Donald Trump. Uh, if there's one legitimate criticism you mention, uh, but one that we hear a lot, it's that it's the inside-outside game difference with Nancy. Good at one and not so great at the other. Is that a fair criticism? <laughs> not so great is a kind way to put it, because Nancy <laughs> Pelosi, I think, is the most skilled political operative inside that we have on the public scene today. Um, historically skilled at the inside game. She's always been 
bad at the outside game. She's never been an effective speaker. She almost skipped the first debate in her first race uh, for Congress because her campaign manager thought she would not do well hmm. in a debate. She continues. She's gotten better, but it's you'd still not say she's an orator, uh, an inspirational orator. Uh, that's just not what she's good at. And I think that has been one reason she hasn't gotten all the credit she's, she's due. And it's probably one reason why she's never really been speculated about as a presidential candidate, because I think that if anyone else had been Speaker of the House, as she has been, uh, with the kind of record that she's amassed, you'd think they might run for president. She says herself she's not interested in running for president, and that may well be, has never been interested in running for president. And that may well be true because she is so perfectly designed for the House of Representatives. So um, she is, I guess, not comfortable uh, always when you see her on television. You interviewed her several times for your book. Was she comfortable and cooperative in those interviews? Yes. she uh, And I'm so grateful she gave me, in the end, 10 interviews, uh, which is a lot for somebody who's also the speaker. The speaker <laughs> pretty bus- pretty you know, busy. <laughs> I did the. I did the first. I didn't have any commitment from her on interviews. And when I did the first interview, she presented me, and with one for herself, a Dove bar. You know, a <laughs> yeah, bar. Yeah. And I took a bite into it, and I scattered little shards of chocolate <laughs> all over her carpet, her pristine, light you know, cream colored carpet. And so there we are picking up little shards of chocolate off the floor. And I thought, this woman is never going to let me come back. And, you know, she did let me come back nine more interviews, but she never again served any food. (laughs) She knew not to trust me with the dove bar, right? I guess. (laughs) But she seemed to open from, from, again, reading the book, she seemed to open up the more you went, particularly when you showed her things that you had discovered that she might not even have known about. Yes, she did. Um, as as you would hope, the more I talked to her, the more she trusted me. Um, and she hadn't been aware of the stuff that Jack Murtha wrote. I brought her copies of those notes. Um, I brought her, one of my sons found, I mentioned that her, her mother was an entrepreneur. Her mother had designed and patented a machine to give women facials, which she sold, mm. um, and which my son found one on eBay and bought it for me and it still worked. And it's got a little plaque on it that says, uh, uh, wow. that it's a vapor for beauty by Nancy D'Alessandro. Um, so I showed her, I showed her that. I don't know if she'd ever, ever seen that before. Um, so all that helped, you know, my most recent interview with her was last week, not for the book, but for USA Today. And in it, I, during it, this, this is a sign I think of how, much more comfortable she became in talking to me. I said, do, when the January, if the mob on January 6th had caught you, do you think they would have killed you? Which is a hard question to ask. Mm, yeah. And she said, yes, that's what they were setting out to do. And then she said, but they would have had a battle on their hands because <laughs> I'm a street fighter. And then she lifted up her foot and said, besides, I would have had this as a weapon. And she pointed to her stiletto heels. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? She would have used them too, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, she said some uh, interesting things in that interview with you, Susan, uh, particularly about some of the people that she's worked with, which I'd like to get to with you. Uh, and let's take a, we got to take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod and then we'll, uh, we'll come right back. 
Today's podcast is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. The Teamsters are the largest and the most diverse of all of America's labor unions, 1.4 million members strong under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa. We think of Teamsters as truck drivers. Well, they are that, but there are a whole lot more. Uh, Every branch of American labor, from vegetable workers in California to brewers in St. Louis, construction workers in Las Vegas or bakery workers in Maine, or as they say, everybody from A to Z, members of the Teamsters, everybody from airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters in the United States, Canada, and Puerto Rico. uh, Thank them for the support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at teamster.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story... You're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at SCS. .georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with Susan Page. Her new book, uh, Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power is just out. It's a dynamite book, a must read. I loved it. You will too. Um, Susan, some of the people that um, uh, Nancy Pelosi has talked to you about, she's, uh, she's pretty upfront about her relationship with them. Um, But let's start with Barack Obama. We mentioned just a little bit earlier. You know, she supported Obama, but sometimes she was, you point out, she's a little frustrated with him, maybe. You know, she's, she expresses enormous regard for Barack Obama. Um, But she did find herself frustrated with him because he, he wasn't really much of a Paul. You know, he had the attitude that he was going to take the right position. Why wouldn't everybody just fall in line? Hmm. Um, You know, for for instance, uh, you know, here's an example of that. Joe Donnelly was a member of Congress here trying to get to vote for the Affordable Care Act um, and uh, from Indiana. And um, so Barack Obama lobbied him by saying, I really need your vote. And that did not persuade Joe Donnelly. I mean, that was that was Obama's point of view. You should do this for me. That's not what Nancy Pelosi did. She got Father Hesburg, who was, of course, the head of Notre Dame, Notre where Dame. Joe Donnelly had gone, had attended. Somebody who was very close to Joe Donnelly, which she knew because she knew her member so well. She got Father Hesburg to hmm. talk to Donnelly. And Father Hesburg did not say, you have to do this for Obama. He didn't say, you have to do this for Pelosi. He said, basically, what do you think is the right thing to do? And I know that you're going to do whatever you think is the right thing to do. And that persuaded Joe Donnelly. Mm. So that's the way in which she understood politics in a way that, that Obama really didn't. And I inter- among the people I interviewed was uh, Leon Panetta, who served in 
uh, Obama's, who had served in the House and right. served in Obama's cabinet, who said that she thinks that it was frustrating to Pelosi to have to deal with kind of Barack Obama's aloofness mm-hmm. from uh, from some policies and his inability to use the levers of power in the way that she could. Uh, and also, as you point out, critical that he didn't do more to help uh, House members uh, in the uh, in the midterm elections uh, as well. Uh, Mitch McConnell, you ask her about Mitch McConnell. She wasn't so kind to him. She said he was an enabler of evil. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably pretty, pretty not a good thing. No, they don't have a good relationship. She didn't tell me this particular story, but two other sources did that when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, Pelosi wanted to have her lie in state in the rotunda uh, because she had been so important as a lawyer, groundbreaking lawyer for I- issues of equal rights, and then a very honored uh, figure on the Supreme Court. And Mitch McConnell said no and wouldn't allow it. And so Pelosi had to, she still had uh, the 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 speaker, the um, justice lie in honor, but she had to do it on the House side. In the statutory uh, hall. hall uh, which is, is not where the greatest honor is. Um, and that was something I think that she found quite maddening on Mitch McConnell's part, but it was not the first time. Right. You devote an entire chapter um, to something that's, uh, that's gotten a lot of buzz in the media, and that is Nancy Pelosi's relationship with the squad, starting with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, well, first of all, what strikes me is that in many ways, Nancy Pelosi and and AOC are very much alike, right? Oh, yeah. And actually, that's a point that Nancy Pelosi made to me. Really? That she recognized AOC. She recognized herself in AOC. She recognized a time when she was very impatient with politicians who made compromises. But that's not where she is right now. Uh, She is still a very liberal member of Congress, but she has been for a long time someone who determined to get things done. And she thinks being unyielding, uh, being unwilling to compromise, playing the short game is not the way to get there. And um, in terms of the power, if you will, of the squad. I mean, she was kind of dismissive of them, right? Um, basically, they're yeah, they're four people. They got four votes. You know, um, so the interviews I had were scheduled well in advance, but several of them happened to fall on really historic days. One was on the the day that the House impeachment hearings began, and one of them was on the day that her feud with the squad just blew up. Mm. And, and had a very contentious meeting with the entire Democratic caucus. And I saw her later that afternoon, and she was still mad. Uh, and she said to me, after a little poking, <laughs> where <laughs> I was trying to get her to, to say what was her actual candid thoughts were, she compared them to children pretending to be really pious and that she she said Dave Bonnier had a phrase for this, that they could stand over there and look very pious, and we'll stand over here and we'll actually legislate. Um, now, that's a pretty dismissive thing to say about uh, four Democratic members of Congress, but that was what she said. 
Right. Posing for holy pictures, as I recall. Posing for holy pictures. That is not praise. No, indeed. Uh, do they still have um, a professional but kind of tense relationship? They, they ha- I think they have a respectful relationship. I think they've mm-hmm. had some ups and downs. Uh, they're both careful not to publicly criticize the other. Um, that's one reason her comments in the interview with me were notable uh, because they were the exception. Um, but they're but they're different kinds of Pauls. Uh, you know, some people close to Pelosi compare AOC to Bernie Sanders, who of course served in the House before he went to the Senate. Somebody who has a vision, um, who who is charismatic in some ways and expressing them gets a following. Uh, but at least while he was in the House and until recently, didn't really get too much done. In mm-hmm. terms of legislation, now you could argue now Bernie Sanders has had the last laugh because he's moved the whole party uh, to the left, but that is not her kind of politics. Um, the, you know the the word that Pelosi gives the the word the best word she can use to describe you if you're a politician is if you're operational, mm, and right. that means you not only hold strong views, but you're willing to do what needs to be done to get things done. Again, to get things done. And of course, a relationship that we will always remember and the history, the historians will write about is Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. Um, She had met him before, as you point out, Charlie Rangel first introduced them. But the first meeting between the newly elected president in the White House, where Speaker, well, she was not, she was Democratic leader then, uh, Nancy Pelosi is at the table um, that sort of set the tone for their entire relationship, Susan. Tell us about it. Well, Donald Trump uh, made uh, the kind of claim uh, that he became famous for making, that is claims that weren't true, claims that weren't true about his own record. Um, and he uh, argued that he had been, that he, he had lost, there were millions of illegal votes cast on the other side, and that's why he had lost the popular vote. And actually, and he said he won the popular vote. He right? said he won yeah. the popular vote. Um, and she said, that's not true. She spoke up. No one else in the room is speaking up. You know, it's, in, it's, it's hard to speak up to a, a president. I think a lot of people are, mm-hmm. even people with a lot of power find it hard to do. Um, she did not find that hard to do. Uh, and she knew she was speaking out of turn. There's a protocol to those meetings. Uh, who's supposed to speak first and second and third? She wasn't supposed to speak up first, but she did. And Steve Bannon told me that he, that he was very curious. Steve Bannon was then Trump's senior political advisor, senior strategist on the White House staff, that he sat down so that he would be right across from where Pelosi was because he wanted to watch her. And after she did that, he turned to Reince Priebus, who was then the White House Chief of Staff, and said, she's an assassin. She's going to, she's going to get us. <laughs> and she did in many ways. And she did. Well, you know, Trump impeached twice, although not removed from office. But at the moment, Trump is living in Mar-a-Lago, and Nancy Pelosi is still Speaker of the House. And and the the relationship, I mean, she actually, again, stormed out of a meeting with the president at one point, right? Stood up, scolded him. That was the last time they spoke. Oh. That was that was in October of, of uh, 2019 mm-hmm. in a converse, in a meeting that was called about Syria. Um, and uh, they. A, a, a argument erupted between them. She stood up. That famous picture of her 
jabbing her finger at him uh, that the White House immediately released because they thought it made her look unhinged. And she then put it on her Twitter banner and did fundraising off it because she thought it made her look in control. She leads a Democratic walkout from that meeting. I mean, have you ever heard of that? In all my years in Washington, I've never heard of an incident like this. No. And I always felt that that she sort of stumped Donald Trump, right? He had a nasty nickname for everybody else, right? Uh, I always thought he just didn't quite know how to handle Nancy. Well, you know, actually, I did an interview with Donald Trump for USA Today with my colleague David Jackson um, in just before the midterm election in 2018, in which he thought he could do business with Nancy Pelosi, that if Democrats won control of the House, as they did a few weeks later, that might not be so bad. There were some things he wanted to get done that maybe he could get done with Democrats that he hadn't gotten done with Republicans. Boy, was he wrong. <laughs> a poll was going to happen uh, once Democrats won control of the House. But I think he I think he saw her warily, perhaps, but with a certain amount of respect. Uh, but once the impeachment, the first impeachment began, I think their relationship was was forever uh, severed. I was surprised to learn right up front in your book, Susan, uh, Madam Speaker, the, the book, that um, had Hillary won in 2016, Nancy had already made plans to step down. Why? That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, she had been she had been uh, the leader for a long time. She was uh, uh, at that point in her 70s. Uh, it's not ridiculous for people in their 70s to think they might want to step down. Um, I speculate that she might have been interested in becoming ambassador to, to Italy or to the Vatican mm-hmm. <laughs> in a Hillary Clinton administration. Um, but that election night, she 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 like everybody, like almost everybody else thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. But that election night when Donald Trump won, uh, she described it as like being kicked by a mule, but she decided almost instantly that she was not stepping down, that she would stick around. And how long does she stick around now? I think this is her last term. Uh, you did, know, she, she had, did she tell you that? Not she's, She has not said that in the kind of flat Sherman-esque way that would give us all something to hang this on. But we know that when she was... Uh, elected speaker in 2018, that she made a commitment to serve just one more term and then one more additional term, but with two-thirds vote of the caucus. She made that because she was facing an actually somewhat serious challenge to her leadership. That was never written into the Democratic rules, but she said this time around that she recognized that was a commitment she she had made and indicated that she intends to honor it, uh, and it's a you know it's a natural it's a natural time. She's been leader a long time. Um, there'll be uh, there is some there is a lot I think a lot of interest in the Democratic Caucus for new leadership. All three top mm-hmm. the three top Democratic leaders in the House are all in their 80s. Uh, so I think it seems like this is I think it is likely that this is her last term. And finally, when you uh, interviewed her, did you? Did you come away with the feeling that she recognizes um, what an important figure she is in American politics? You know, she's she not, really is. She's not someone who brags about herself, uh, but she doesn't. But she has self-esteem, um, and I think that one reason 
she cooperated with me in this biography is because it was my view, which I told her, that she was one of the most consequential leaders in American history who had not gotten the credit that she deserved. Yeah, I mean, by far, right, the the most powerful woman ever in American politics. No question about that. Uh, and the first as speaker, uh, and then to be reelected as speaker, as you point out, Sam Rayburn was the only other one who did that before her. So, yes, yeah, down in history. Uh, all put together in a great book, Madam Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. <laughs> Susan, congratulations. Great work. So who's next, by the way? Barbara Bush, now Nancy Pelosi. I would like to do another book, but I don't have a, a topic. So if you have any ideas, I would love to hear them. All right. We'll talk about that. You let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll figure that one out, too. Okay. Susan, thank you so much for joining us on the Bill Press Pod. And again, congratulations. Have a great run with the book. Hey, thank you, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Susan Page, uh, author of the great new book, Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. Buy it, read it, you will enjoy it. And there's a link to buy the book on the episode notes of this uh, episode of the Bill Press Pod. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Stay safe, stay strong. See you again soon.